0: This is Audible. Books on Tape presents Guilty, Liberal Victims and Their Assault on America by Ann Coulter Read by Margie Moore Chapter 1 Liberal Motto Speak Loudly and Carry a Small Victim Liberals always have to be the victims, particularly when they are oppressing others. Modern victims aren't victims because of what they have suffered. They're victims of convenience for the left. There's no way to determine if an action is offensive by looking at the action. One must know who did it to whom and whose side the most powerful people in America will take. Chapter 2 Victim of a Crime? Thank a Single Mother The most worshipped figure in modern America is the single mother. Politicians tout their programs by explaining how they will help single mothers. At campaign stops, a sure way to draw applause from the crowd is to introduce single mothers in the audience. No news report on a matter of national importance is complete unless it includes a soundbite from a single mother, preferably one bravely struggling to juggle a career and child-rearing obligations. Christian ministers cite the single mother in their sermons as the personification of selfless virtue. Jesse Jackson, at last count personally responsible for at least one single mother, compares single mothers to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Even Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane is a single mother in the 2006 movie Superman Returns, in which the Man of Steel plays a superhero deadbeat dad. Single mothers are not only unsung heroines as the title of a recent book puts it they are perennial victims the unwitting victims of sex with men they're not married to over and over again we are told that this or that policy will result in single mothers being hit hardest newspapers must have a macro on their computers single women hardest hit bankruptcy reform Single mothers especially are among those hardest hit by bankruptcy reform. Home oil prices. Hardest hit by the heating hike will be people like Dina Tirano, 28, an unemployed single mother who has lived with her mother in their Bellevue home for 20 years. Shift work. Often working women, particularly single mothers, suffer the most from shift work because the household activities and child care duties still fall to them, experts said. Health insurance. Those hardest hit are women, especially single mothers and children. A slowing economy. Women, and especially single mothers, have been the hardest hit by this economic downturn. Housing woes. Single mothers with children are among the hardest hit by the state shortage of affordable homes and apartments. Hurricane Katrina. The most vulnerable populations in New Orleans, the elderly, people with physical and mental disabilities, and single mothers out of the labor market, arguably were hit hardest by Katrina. Immigration fees single mothers, battered women, the homeless will suffer the most. Daycare hardest hit are single mothers. Global warming. The rise of energy prices affects energy accessibility and its usage by the poorest, particularly elderly women and single mothers. Parents abused by children. Single mothers appear to suffer the most from child violence. Grocery stores relocating. Hardest hit by the exodus are single mothers, the elderly, and residents without cars. The minimum wage. The minimum wage needs to be raised, and the group it hits the hardest are single mothers workfare rules republican efforts to tighten america's chief welfare plan could drive poor single mothers deeper into poverty according to a new report there is no better example of phony victims who are actually victimizers than single mothers we're not living in dickensian england with husbands dropping like flies from cholera plague and industrial accidents creating blameless single mothers. Charles Dickens, England, had single mothers because the average lifespan for males, circa 1830, ranged from 44 years for the middle and upper classes down to 22 years for laborers. That isn't the reason we have an explosion of single mothers in 21st century America. We have single mothers because more than a million women choose to have children out of wedlock every year in America and do not then wed... Or give the babies up for adoption. By their own choices, they consign their children to starting life with second class status. Of all single mothers in America, only 6.5% of them are widows, 37.8% are divorced, and 41.3% gave birth out of wedlock. The 6.5% of single mothers whose husbands have died shouldn't be called single mothers at all we already have a word for them widows their children do just fine compared with the children of married parents liberals refer to widows as single mothers to try to class up the category much as they do with their infuriating description of the gi bill as a form of welfare or the u.s military as a successful government program We can't blame mothers who get divorced for being single mothers. We should blame both mothers and fathers. Divorce typically proceeds from adultery, abandonment, or abuse, and there are only two suspects, both of whom are the parents of the children whose lives will forever be harmed by the dissolution of a marriage. After interviewing nearly 100 children of divorce, Linda Bird Frankie, a divorced mother who wrote the book Growing Up Divorced, said almost all were sad and virtually all were angry in any event divorced mothers should be called divorced mothers not single mothers we also have a term for the youngsters involved the children of divorce or as i call them future strippers it is a mark of how attractive it is to be a phony victim that divorcees will often claim to belong to the more disreputable category of single mothers Far more cruel than bequeathing your children a broken family through divorce is to raise children out of wedlock. True, single mothers are women who, by their own volition, have done everything in their power to ruin their children's lives before they're even born. It makes no difference if the pregnancy was unplanned, unwanted, or accidental. And many aren't any of those. Getting pregnant isn't like catching the flu. There are volitional acts involved. Someone else explain it to Dennis Kucinich. By this purposeful act, single mothers cause irreparable harm to other human beings, their own children, as countless studies on the subject make clear. Not only do single mothers hurt their children, they also foist a raft of social pathologies on society. Look at almost any societal problem, and you will find it is really a problem of single mothers. Is it cruel to describe the life chances single mothers are giving their children? How about compared with actually doing that to children at a rate of about 1.5 million a year? If a child in the womb could choose one fact about his parents, rich, good-looking, intelligent, easygoing, athletic, went to Harvard, black or white, the one factor that would improve his life chances more than any other is that they be married. Or at least the second choice right after mother is not pro-choice. The only thing a baby shouldn't want is parents who divorce. Or, worst of all, were never married. That's starting life with a losing hand. Liberal think tanks denounce efforts to promote marriage, deceptively chirping, as Mary Park of the Center for Law and Social Policy did, that most children in single parent homes grow up without serious problems. Yes, and most smokers won't die of lung disease. The evidence of the damage of single parenthood is so blindingly obvious even liberals have started to admit it. A 2004 New York Times Magazine article on welfare families by Jason DeParle said, mounds of social science from the left and the right leave little doubt that the children of single-parent families face heightened risks. Calling a single-parent family a double dose of disadvantage, the Times article cited as the definitive text a book by sociologists Sarah McLanahan and Gary Sandifer that concluded back in 1994. In our opinion, the evidence is quite clear. Children who grow up in a household with only one biological parent are worse off, on average, than children who grow up in a household with both of their biological parents, regardless of the parent's race or educational background. That's an understatement the eminent social scientist charles murray says illegitimacy is the single most important social problem of our time more important than crime drugs poverty illiteracy welfare or homelessness because it drives everything else here is the lottery ticket that single mothers are handing their innocent children by choosing to raise them without fathers controlling for socioeconomic status race and place of residence the strongest predictor of whether a person will end up in prison is that he was raised by a single parent. By 1996, 70% of inmates in state juvenile detention centers serving long-term sentences were raised by single mothers. 72% of juvenile murderers and 60% of rapists come from single mother homes. 70% of teenage births, Dropouts, suicides, runaways, juvenile delinquents, and child murderers involve children raised by single mothers. Girls raised without fathers are more sexually promiscuous and more likely to end up divorced. A 1990 study by the Progressive Policy Institute showed that after controlling for single motherhood, the difference between black and white crime rates disappeared. Various studies come up with slightly different numbers, but all the figures are grim. According to the Index of Leading Cultural Indicators, children from single-parent families account for 63% of all youth suicides, 70% of all teenage pregnancies, 71% of all adolescent chemical-slash-substance abuse, 80% of all prison inmates, and 90 percent of all homeless and runaway children a study cited in the village voice produced similar numbers it found that children brought up in single mother homes are five times more likely to commit suicide nine times more likely to drop out of high school 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances 14 times more likely to commit rape for the boys 20 times more likely to end up in prison, and 32 times more likely to run away from home. Single motherhood is like a farm team for future criminals and social outcasts. With new children being born, running away, dropping out of high school, and committing murder every year, it's not a static problem to analyze. But however the numbers are run, single motherhood is a societal nuclear bomb. Many of these studies, for example, are from the 1990s, when the percentage of teenagers raised by single parents was lower than it is today. In 1990, 28% of children under 18 were being raised in one-parent homes, mother or father, and 71% were being raised in two-parent homes. By 2005, more than one-third of all babies born in the United States were illegitimate. That's a lot of social problems coming. Imagine an America with 70% fewer juvenile delinquents, 70% fewer teenage births, 63% to 70% fewer teenage suicides, and 70% to 90% fewer runaways, and you will appreciate what the sainted single mothers have accomplished. Even in liberals' fevered nightmares, predatory mortgage dealers, oil speculators, and Ken Lay could never do as much harm to their fellow human beings as single mothers do. The problem is not confined to the United States. With a welfare state similar to America's, Britain leads Europe in the proportion of single mothers and also is ranked by UNICEF at the bottom of all industrialized nations in the well-being of its children. Britain tops the European Union in crime, including violent crime, alcohol and drug abuse, obesity, and sexually transmitted diseases, though some are ties. Citing these statistics in a 2007 article in Maclean's magazine, British journalist Martin Newland said, Increasingly, but belatedly, politicians are beginning to identify the decline of marriage and the family as the major cause of social dysfunctions, including ill health crime, rampant promiscuity, and welfare dependency. Family breakdown is not spread evenly throughout the population. America has more than twice as many teenage births as other developed nations, 80% of which are out of wedlock. Only 4% of college graduates have illegitimate children. 16% of college graduates will get divorced, compared with 46% of high school dropouts, despite the fact that high school dropouts are less likely to get married in the first place. This rash of single motherhood is breeding a huge underclass. Half of the single mothers in the United States are below the poverty line, making their children six times more likely to be in poverty than children with married parents. Single mothers account for 85% of homeless families. 90% of welfare recipients are single mothers, According to Isabel V. Sawhill of the liberal Brookings Institution, almost all of the increase in child poverty since the 1970s is attributable to the increase in single-parent families. The 2004 New York Times Magazine article describing the world of welfare families hinted at the problem, saying that if you dig down deep in the world of the underclass, you hit a geyser of father yearning. The English doctor who writes under the pen name Theodore Dalrymple says the conceptual framework of the underclass is to see themselves as the passive victims of circumstances with no control over their own lives. This is a worldview unique to two groups, derelicts and liberals. Dalrymple reports that three murderers in the prison he serves used the exact same words to describe their crimes. The knife went in, as Dalrymple says, that the long-hated victims were sought out, and the knives carried to the scene of the crimes was as nothing compared with the willpower possessed by the inanimate knives themselves, which determined the unfortunate outcome. Murderers view their arrests for murder a matter of bad luck. All their life, choices are things that happen to them, these marionettes of happenstance. It's the same thing with battered women who act as if they could not possibly have foreseen the violent tendencies in their boyfriends. This, Dalrymple says, serves to absolve them of all responsibility for whatever happens thereafter, allowing them to think of themselves as victims alone rather than the victims and accomplices they are. And yet, Dalrymple demonstrates that they knew exactly what they were getting into with the men who beat them. He ascertains this by asking battered women two questions. One, do you think I could have guessed by looking at your boyfriend that he would beat you? Answer, yes. And two, what do you think I noticed about your boyfriend that would cause me to know he would beat you? Answer, the tattoos, the scars, the shaved head, etc., Thus, Dalrymple concludes that they knew it, too, but acted as if their boyfriends beating them was a bolt out of the blue in order to hold themselves blameless for hooking up with abusive men. How much stranger is it to act as if unwed pregnant women have nothing to do with their circumstances? Getting pregnant isn't like getting cancer. Single mothers don't occur randomly in the population. As any kindergartner in today's public schools can tell you, pregnancy is the result of having sex without using a condom. And yet, a 1992 New York Times article about single mothers on welfare used the exact same passive voice of the criminal described by Dalrymple. According to the Times, the women became pregnant out of wedlock when... Their youth was overtaken by motherhood. External factors caused their dilemmas, not their own free will. Being black and from the inner city also raised the likelihood of dependency. Adopting the language of irresponsibility that has done so much for the poor, the 15-year-old son of an unwed mother told the Times, My mother ain't got the money. That's the kind of stuff that makes you sell drugs. You want something? and you ain't got nothing in your pocket. A Times editorial explained that the true enemy is poverty. For half a century, American welfare policy was premised on the insane idea that being poor causes single motherhood and crime, rather than that single motherhood causes criminal behavior and poverty. The result of treating a symptom rather than the cause was that all three— Poverty, single motherhood, and crime skyrocketed. A single mother in West Virginia explained her unwed pregnancy to The Economist, saying, It just happened. Our entire political class and popular culture seem to agree. Single motherhood just happens. We must all pretend that single women are passive victims of their own incredibly stupid choices and then extol them for their pluck. A book praising single mothers denounces those in middle-class America who implicitly assume that girls and young women would have more control over their lives if they deferred motherhood. Apparently, deferring motherhood until marriage is impossible for the poor because the knife went in. Wait, no, because they rarely see such choices as marriage as open to them at all. Perhaps they would see such choices more clearly if the entire liberal establishment were not constantly praising single mothers and sneering at the unhip, drab middle class with their bourgeois prejudices against having children out of wedlock. Having money doesn't make you middle class. The secret to being middle class in America is keep your knees together before marriage and graduate from high school. That's it. Anyone who does those two things has a smaller chance of being in poverty than a boy from the Dalton School has of being in the Navy SEALs. We could wipe out chronic poverty in America tomorrow if women could just manage to get married before having children and to stay married after having children. But reinforcing the idea that single motherhood is just a matter of rotten luck on the order of a brick falling on your head or apparently knifing someone in a pub liberals respond to the crisis of single motherhood by demanding yet more instruction in birth control it's society's fault that teenagers are getting pregnant we've already run that experiment It was precisely the advent of the pill that precipitated the gusher of illegitimate births in the first place. As with Dalrymple's battered women, if it was just bad luck, why were conservatives able to predict that the wide availability of birth control would lead to more illegitimate children? Teaching proper condom use in government schools sends what we call a mixed message. Never under any circumstances have sex before you're married. Now. Here are the precautions you'll want to take before having premarital sex. It doesn't matter if twice as many unwed girls are using birth control, if 10,000 times more unwed girls are having sex. Our public schools are drowning in condoms. More 7th graders know how to put on a condom than can name the first president, although kids who are really good with a condom all seem to know the name of the 42nd. If public schools were required to offer any more birth control classes, they might not have time for their planet jihad lessons. The idea that mastering the use of birth control is information adolescents are lacking is nonsense. They're running transcontinental drug rings and complicated welfare frauds, but they need instruction in how to put on a condom? Apparently, it wasn't society's failure to provide birth control classes that led to a spike in unwed mothers at Gloucester High School in Massachusetts in 2008. Time magazine revealed that nearly a dozen adolescent girls had entered a pregnancy pact, agreeing to get pregnant on purpose. After 17 high school girls, none older than 16, got pregnant that year, four times more than the average, The school nurses remarked that they had noticed a surge in sophomores coming in for pregnancy testing. The girls walked out sullen if the test came back negative, but ecstatic if it was positive. For some, it was the first test they had ever passed. Under questioning, the girls confessed to making a pact to get pregnant and raise their babies together. One girl had gotten herself pregnant with a homeless man who reportedly wooed her with free rides in his shopping cart. "'They're so excited,' one unwed teenaged mother said, "'to finally have someone to love them unconditionally.'" Another classmate explained, "'No one's offered them a better option.'" Admittedly, a better option than being impregnated by a guy who sleeps under an overpass and collects cans for a living is hard to imagine. But the point is it's our fault. These girls are just victims of a society that hasn't offered them something better other than living in the most prosperous, free nation on earth. I know from reading the New York Times that it's madness to ask people to wait until marriage to have sex. Why should people worry about the kind of life they are giving a child when they have a shot at fleeting sexual pleasure? Even Sidney Squire, head of President Bush's marriage promotion project in the Office of Family Assistance, stoutly assured The Economist that her office did not take a view on whether people should have premarital sex. So I guess, as with global warming, the debate is over. But Americans used to be able to care about the circumstances of their children's births, The illegitimacy rate has gone up by more than 300% since 1970. Moreover, even assuming that sometime around the year 1969, the entire human race lost the ability to defer gratification, there's still the wholly volitional decision not to give the baby up for adoption. In 1979, Only about 600,000 babies were born out of wedlock, and one quarter of them were put up for adoption. By 1991, the number of illegitimate births had doubled to 1,225,000 annually, but only 4% were allowed to be adopted, and most of those babies were snapped up by either Angelina Jolie or Mia Farrow. By 2003, 1.5 million illegitimate babies were born every year, but only about 14,000 of them, less than 1%, were put up for adoption. Not surprisingly, unwed mothers who care enough to give their children up for adoption also come overwhelmingly from responsible backgrounds. They tend to have higher education and income levels and to come from intact upper-middle-class families with highly educated parents. You will note that we do not read about adopted children filling up the prisons, welfare rolls, and runaway shelters. Adopted children are no worse off, and indeed are generally better off, than non-adopted children. There aren't a lot of studies about adopted children because they aren't constantly mugging us and creating social disorders. But one four-year study by the Search Institute in Minnesota looked at the mental and psychological well-being of 881 teenagers who had been adopted as infants. The study found that adopted teenagers had greater empathy, higher self-esteem, and more close friends than non-adopted teenagers in public schools. They were less likely to engage in high-risk behavior, such as stealing or excessive drinking, than non-adopted teenagers. In all, they scored higher than the control group of non-adopted children on 16 indicators of well-being. They were less than half as likely to have divorced parents than non-adopted teenagers, 11% to 28%, and were as strongly attached to their parents as their non-adopted siblings. 95% of the adoptive parents were strongly attached to their adopted child. The majority of adopted teenagers rarely even thought about the fact that they were adopted. Adopted children of a different race from their family did just as well. The only important factor in adoption is that the child be adopted within the first 15 months of his life. We cannot overstate, the study's authors said, the power of early placement. The blessed single mothers we are required to idolize had a choice of placing their children in the best of all possible worlds for their children, adoption, or the worst of all possible worlds, single mother families. To satisfy their own selfish interests, they chose the worst of all possible worlds. Couldn't newspapers start telling us how global warming... Government programs and hurricanes are going to affect a more desirable group, like drug dealers? Obviously, adoptive parents are the people who deserve all the praise, admiration, and Oprah appearances, not single mothers. But they're merely saving children's lives. They're not sad sack victims, selfishly destroying their children's lives and depending on society to support them. Contrary to popular mythology, there is no shortage of parents ready to adopt. There are waiting lists of parents who want to adopt babies with Down syndrome, spina bifida, and AIDS. In 2004, the head of Adoption Rhode Island, Jeff Katz, said, I have seen children who were victims of torture adopted. I know an adoptive mother who grew up in foster care who was able to recognize the cigarette burns on her adopted son's body because she, too, had those scars. I have seen countless children whom nobody wanted become treasured members of their new families. I have seen all of these children thrive, and I have seen their families thrive. Cats implored, don't ever, ever let anyone tell you that these children wait because no one wants to adopt them. Unable to adopt babies in this country, Americans adopt from abroad more than 20,000 babies in 2003. Back in the days when we weren't required to constantly praise single mothers, a New York University study found single mothers to be overtly dominant, aggressive, narcissistic, and bitterly hostile. And yet, All of society has been trained to have nothing but sympathy for these aggressors. Not surprisingly, Hollywood has taken a leading role in portraying single mothers as victims, while relentlessly promoting promiscuity, single motherhood, prostitution, and divorce to the detriment of the most vulnerable members of society. But if anyone makes a peep of criticism, suddenly it's 1939 Germany and overpaid writers from Murphy Brown are the Jews. Hollywood movers and shakers are as rich as any oil company's CEO, but the role they love to play the most is victim. There was unmitigated joy when Dan Quayle said in 1992, It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid, professional women, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. At the Emmy Awards ceremony that year, they're always giving awards to one another, these martyrs. The creator of the Murphy Brown show, Diane English, was showered with awards. English took the occasion to say, I would like to thank our sponsors for hanging in there when it was getting really dangerous. Inasmuch as the entire awards program was a quail-bashing festival, it's hard to believe any of them were ever in much danger from Dan Quayle. TV producer Gary David Goldberg said, I've never seen a time where people have responded this viscerally and taken the attacks so much to heart. Bob Burkett, vice president of a film production outfit, said, No question that a gauntlet has been laid down to this community. We've decided to pick it up. Marge Tabankin, executive director of the Hollywood Women's Political Committee, said, The community feels targeted, It's created a chill and fear reminiscent of the 50s. Let's face it, we feel we're being used as whipping boys. Yes, Hollywood liberals have got balls to spare, and that's why I admire them so much. The starring victims, Single Mothers, were almost completely forgotten in the Hollywood Sobfest, Liberals invoked their own mythical victim status to censor any criticism of Hollywood's celebration of illegitimacy. The New York Times denounced Quayle's Murphy Brown speech in an editorial sniffing, He seems seriously to believe that what poor people most need is moral fiber. Obviously, what poor people really need is free housing, food stamps, and yet another government program designed to treat them like passive, helpless children. Despite the fact that a majority of illegitimate children in America are whites of European descent, soon Jesse Jackson was getting into the Victimhood Act, attacking conservative criticism of single motherhood as racist. In a debate about Quayle's remarks between Jackson and Pat Robertson on ABC's Good Morning America, Robertson discussed the scourge of single motherhood, saying he had lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant, one of the worst black slums in America, and I know the plight of the poor and I've committed my life to help them. But you're not going to help black people unless the black men stop siring children out of wedlock. Fortunately, Jackson did not threaten to cut his nuts off, as he would years later to be Hussein Obama. Instead, Jackson retorted, That's a racist statement! That's a racist statement! Then, at the 1992 Democratic National Convention that year, Jackson said, Lastly, a lot of talk these days about family values, even as we spurn the homeless on the street. Remember, Jesus was born to a homeless couple outdoors in a stable in the winter. Jesus was the child of a single mother. When Mary said Joseph was not the father, she was abused and questioned. If she had aborted the baby, she would have been called immoral. If she had the baby, she would have been called unfit, without family values. But Mary had family values. It was Herod, the quail of his day, who put no value on the family. I wonder if that's the line Jackson used on Karen Stanford, the mother of his illegitimate child. Needless to say, the Democratic Convention erupted in applause at Jackson's lunatic comparison of single mothers to Mary, the mother of Jesus. In the Democrats' defense, they could not be accused of applauding a sacrilegious speech because the delegates were unfamiliar with the original story. Just quickly, Mary and Joseph were married before Jesus was born. They were not homeless. They were traveling to Bethlehem to register for the census. No one ever abused and questioned Mary about being pregnant. Mary did have the baby, so luckily we dodged the bullet of her aborting the Son of God. No one called Mary unfit without family values. The only people who knew who the real father was came to worship Jesus. Also, Mary was a virgin. I am fairly certain that we are not witnessing the miracle of 1.5 million virgin births every year. As David Reinhardt wrote in the Oregonian, perhaps at the next convention Jackson would be likening Jesus' disciples to the Crips and Bloods. Finally, to compare someone to Herod is like comparing him to Hitler, or whoever the current head of Planned Parenthood is. Herod ordered the slaughter of all children under two years old in Bethlehem. He did not give a speech criticizing Hollywood elites for glamorizing single motherhood. But apart from that, the Reverend Jackson had all his biblical points right. For example, Jesus was, in fact, a hymie. Not only was Jackson not laughed into obscurity, but his inane remarks turned him into the Democrats' most respected speaker since William Jennings Bryan. The Boston Globe hailed the speech as a powerful reminder of his importance to the party as its conscience, its goad, and its spokesman for those too often ignored as the Democrats move relentlessly toward the middle. I couldn't have said it better myself. Jesse Jackson, not just an unintelligible, skirt-chasing, shakedown artist, but the conscience of the Democratic Party. After the massive coordinated attack on Dan Quayle for his Murphy Brown speech, no politician again dared to speak up on behalf of the 1.5 million children consigned to starting life on the back bench each year in America. They might be accused by Bryant Gumbel, then of CBS's early show, of using family values as a code word for intolerance and less inclusion. As Brent Bozell of the Media Research Center said, even after the 2004 election when voters chose moral values as the most important issue, Republicans refused to campaign on issues of morality. Republican strategists, Bozell said, pull muscles just thinking about Dan Quayle scorning the Murphy-Brown single mom plot in 1992. A phalanx of professional victims— Oppressed Hollywood multimillionaires, single mothers, and black agitators swept the real victims, children raised without fathers, under the rug. As Time Warner's surprisingly large circulation magazine Baby Talk put it in 2007, just 15 years ago, then-Vice President Dan Quayle publicly scolded a fictional television character, Murphy Brown, from the primetime sitcom of the same name, for choosing to have a child on her own. Today, the 2008 presidential hopefuls from both parties recognize that single moms are a force to be reckoned with and would be more likely to send Brown a baby gift than to question her choices. And so they do. When President Bush gave the commencement address at Miami-Dade College in 2007, he singled out two members of the graduating class for special mention, both immigrants, One had enlisted in the United States Marine Corps out of high school, served in Iraq, and returned to go to college. The other, from Trinidad and Tobago, was a single mother of four. Did America lose some sort of immigration lottery? That same year, President Bush's daughter Jenna wrote a book about a 17-year-old single mother who was HIV positive. Anna's Story, A Journey of Hope. As a presidential candidate, John Kerry was constantly touting single mothers, using them in his campaign ads and giving them speaking time at campaign rallies. The week he announced he was running for president, Kerry held a campaign event at Faneuil Hall in Boston. Three eminences spoke on his behalf the mayor of Boston, Senator Ted Kennedy, and a 20 year old single mother. It's hard to say whose reputation suffered the most from this joint appearance. In 1994, President Bill Clinton held an emotional press conference at the White House to promote his crime bill, which was going to end crime in America by providing for midnight basketball and banning so-called assault weapons, defined as semi-automatics that look scary to liberals. Three crime victims spoke in favor of one or another aspect of the bill, including Janice Payne of New Orleans, whose nine-year-old son James had been shot and killed in his neighborhood. In an eerie coincidence, just days before he was shot, James had written a letter to Clinton saying, I want you to stop the killing. People is dead, and I think somebody might kill me. In this particular case, however, there were other risk factors in James' life that arguably superseded the availability of guns. For example, he lived with a single mother in a crack house, or as the realtors call it, a shooter-upper his mother had pleaded guilty to possession of painkillers and crack cocaine. These facts came to light after Louisiana law enforcement saw Ms. Payne standing next to the president during the Rose Garden ceremony and arrested her for parole violations, which, by the way, was about the extent to which Clinton's crime bill stopped crime. In 2008, the city commissioner of Opelika, Florida, a single mother herself, hosted A Salute to Single Mothers, with cash prizes for the single mother with the most affecting story. They struggle to cope. Give them prizes, one single mother said. It would be easy to be single by myself, but I would rather have my kids with me and struggle with them. If someone said that about a pet, he'd be charged with animal cruelty. The attendees got gift bags, cash prizes, and information on taxpayer-funded goodies available to single mothers. The commissioner said she hoped the next awards ceremony... For mothers who intentionally harm their children to be even bigger in 2004 the New York Times attacked the Bush tax cuts by quoting a retired coal miner from southern Illinois who complained my daughter is a single mother and she didn't get a tax cut admittedly in this case the problem may have less to do with the absence of a husband and more to do with Democrats maddening inability to understand that you have to pay taxes in order to get a tax cut But notice how the man, a Democrat according to the Times, self-righteously announced the embarrassing circumstances of his own daughter, as if it were a badge of honor that she was a single mother. People used to brag about their children getting into an Ivy League school or joining the Marines. Now they brag about their kids having children without being married. That same year, discussing the alternative minimum tax on national public radio, David K. Johnston, then a tax reporter for the New York Times, illustrated the unfairness of it by saying, It now applies to very few people who make multimillion-dollar incomes, but it can apply to a single mother who only makes $30,000. How about we double the tax on single mothers to create a disincentive to illegitimacy so that fewer children's lives will be ruined? Sociologist Ruth Seidel was a little late to the party when she wrote that single mothers should be celebrated and indeed applauded for their courage, determination, commitment to others, and independence of spirit. This was in her book, Unsung Heroines, Single Mothers and the American Dream, which is not to be confused with Louise Sloan's book, Knock Yourself Up, No Man, No Problem, A Tell-All Guide to Becoming a Single Mom. Or Jane Mattis' book, Single Mothers by Choice, a guidebook for single women who are considering or have chosen motherhood. Or Colleen Sell's book, Cup of Comfort for Single Mothers, stories that celebrate the women who do it all. Or Rosanna Hertz's book, Single by Chance, Mothers by Choice, How Women Are Choosing Parenthood Without Marriage and Creating the New American Family. Or Ellie Slot Fisher's, Mom, there's a man in the kitchen and he's wearing your robe. The Single Mom's Guide to Dating Well Without Parenting Poorly. And, of course, there's the soon-to-be classic by me, What to Expect When You're Expecting Because You're an Irresponsible Little Tramp. Single motherhood is the apotheosis of the feminist vision. Women without men. Except they're not without men. They're without one specific man with an interest in their particular children but men and women across the country have been forcibly enlisted in the job of feeding, housing, and clothing single mothers and their children. The rest of us have to be constantly attuned to the needs of single mothers. Government policies are designed to support single mothers rather than to stop them. Churches, corporations, and nonprofit organizations are required to chip in to make up for single mothers' lack of husbands. I am woman, hear me roar. Hey, what's the holdup with my government check? A 2008 study led by Georgia State University economist Benjamin Scafitti, found that single mothers, unwed or divorced, cost the U.S. taxpayer $112 billion every year. We could have had two Iraq wars at that price. Ken Starr gave us more than a dozen high-level felony convictions and a presidential impeachment for a mere $40 million. Scafidi underestimated single mothers' burden to society by using the lowest estimates of single mothers in poverty and excluding additional costs of single mothers to programs such as the earned income tax credit and remedial education programs in public schools. Scafidi's study did not even consider the burden single mothers place on law enforcement because of their higher likelihood to neglect or kill their children in order to spend more time with their boyfriends. A huge percentage of law enforcement resources are spent dealing with the behavior of white trash in America, of which single motherhood is a major part. 85% of mothers who kill their children through neglect are single mothers. Consider some of the more newsworthy child murder cases over the past few years. In the fall of 2008, single mother Casey Anthony was indicted for the murder of her two-year-old Kaylee Marie Anthony. However the trial comes out, the child is gone. In 2004, 28-year-old single mother Tammy Huff beat to death her 8-year-old son Jose Torres with the assistance of her boyfriend, Bradley Dial. In 2003, single mother Amanda Ham, 27 years old, drowned her three young sons aged 6, 3, and 23 months so she could move to St. Louis with her boyfriend. It would have been a lot of trouble to bring the boys with them. Apparently, the prospect of hearing, Are We There Yet? for eight hours was just too daunting for Amanda. In 2001, 21 year old single mother Jennifer Sisowski killed her eight month old illegitimate son, Gideon Fuscus, by repeatedly throwing him down a flight of stairs at her grandmother's swank Florida home. The case was especially unusual because Sisowski came from a wealthy, albeit broken, Connecticut family. In 1998, 25 year old single mother Tammy Lynn Richards left her two children, three and one and a half years old, alone in their apartment while she went to a bar to drink and listen to a band. One of the boys set a fire when he was playing with matches he found in the apartment. Both boys died. On the other hand, from what I hear, the bar band was pretty awesome. In 1995, single mother Jenny Bain-Ducker, 21 years old, left her two sons, aged one and two, buckled in their car seats with the windows rolled up outside a motel while she partied all night in a Nashville motel room with her boyfriend and three other men. When Ducker returned to the car in the morning, the boys were dead from the heat. It was estimated that the temperature in the car reached 120 degrees. In 1994... 24-year-old separated single mother Susan Smith strapped her two sons into their car seats before sending the car to the bottom of a lake in Union, South Carolina. Her boyfriend had just broken up with her, telling her he didn't want to marry a woman with children. If single mothers killing their children were any more common, Hallmark would have to introduce a card. Honey, you were so sweet, open card, to murder your children for me. What makes these cases exceptional is that the mothers weren't teenagers and most of the children were older than one, having passed the most likely time period for a mother to kill her child. And also contrary to the norm, these cases seem to involve the idealized Murphy Brown style single mothers, mostly middle-class white women. But unfortunately for their children, they were still single mothers. Even when they kill their children, single mothers are portrayed as victims, in the book Mothering and Ambivalence, author Wendy Holway defended the mothering instincts of Susan Smith and Jenny Bain Ducker by noting that before drowning or cooking their children to death, the children were strapped into safety seats, emphasis hers, thus demonstrating the mother's concern with the children's safety. Yeah, you wouldn't want to drown a child who's running around loose in the car. He might bump his head or try to escape. An article criticizing the maternal myths, promoted in news reports about women who kill their children, explained that women may kill their children because of economic stress, to avoid the social stigma of an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, or because they feel isolated or depressed about a romantic relationship, all factors that limit the suspects to single mothers. Sadly, the alleged stigma of single motherhood is not nearly so powerful as the real stigma against criticizing single mothers, even the ones who murder their own children. After 33 year old single mother Danielle Blaise drowned her six year old autistic son in a bathtub in 1996, the president of the Quebec Autism Society, Peter Zwack, leapt to the murderous mother's defense by explaining that an autistic child would be especially hard on a single mother. She was all alone, and that would have made things even more impossible. Yes, even for someone with the parenting skills of a Danielle Blaze. How many crimes went unsolved in Orlando, Florida, while Casey Anthony led the police on one wild goose chase after another? How many criminals escaped detection and capture in Union, South Carolina, while the police were tied up searching for Susan Smith's children when she knew they were at the bottom of a lake? Massive police resources were wasted locally and nationally looking for Smith children for nine days while she refused to tell the police that she had killed her children herself. What emergencies was the Westminster, Colorado Fire Department unable to respond to while they were putting out the fire set by Tammy Lynn Richards' children while she was at a bar? What crimes did the Nashville police fail to stop while they were dealing with children who died after being left in their mother's sweltering car overnight? It's bad enough that single mothers are a giant drain on society, but it is really too much to be constantly asked to feel sorry for them. Instead of being grateful, these societal parasites whine about being victimized. In 2006, the liberal magazine In These Times complained that from Reagan's welfare queen's Quayle's criticism of murphy brown and now bush's dramatic slashing of social programs single mothers have been under attack over the last 20 years also in 2006 participants at a national women's studies association meeting raged about the untold cruelties visited upon single mothers even hillary clinton had thoughtlessly jumped on the marriage promotion bandwagon according to one speaker these harpies demanded that single motherhood be affirmed as the right of women. Analysis that insightful is usually heard from people dressed in multiple layers of filthy clothing on a hot summer's day and pushing a grocery cart full of bottles and cans down an alley. But the idea that society owes single mothers has become conventional wisdom in America. Even single mothers who became that way through artificial insemination are celebrated as deserving victims, which, unless they're claiming to have tripped and landed on top of a turkey baster full of semen, is not true. Liberals view single women having babies by artificial insemination as a feminist success story. In an upbeat article about artificially inseminated single mothers, a New York Times reporter happily observed that a woman can now select the father of her child from her living room and have his sperm sent directly to her doctor. It is faster and cheaper than adoption and allows women to bear their own genetic offspring. But it's not all sunshine and song, Some intolerant people make remarks that are hurtful to women who have made the difficult, deeply personal choice to ruin their own child's life. As Baby Talk magazine somberly reported, unmarried moms do feel the sting of prejudice. The New York Times noted that the most common accusation is that intentional single mothers are selfish, which the Times explained was based on a widely held belief that two-parent homes are best for children. One of the single mothers by artificial insemination indignantly reported that a friend had suggested that she channel her nurturing instincts into working at a children's hospital instead of becoming a single mother. To this impertinent remark, she retorted, Can you say condescending? Another single mother by artificial insemination said that the child was more important than the partner. She might want to check with the child on that one. But the Times explained that these women have seen friends in unhappy marriages. What does the child's life chances matter when a woman is not willing, as the Times article said, to settle for Mr. Almost Right in order to have a baby? The Los Angeles Times quoted another single mother by artificial insemination who said, You're paying for it, so you kind of want the best of the best. Call me old-fashioned but when someone is promoting eugenics like that i prefer it in the original german so she got the best sperm to create a child that she will raise in the worst possible environment for the development of a well-adjusted human being fatherless one member of single mothers by choice sacrificed premarital sex while she was pregnant which i gather is considered a herculean feat these days you go through an awful lot of trouble to get pregnant she said You don't want to blow it on one night of fun. Perhaps she'll be able to use that years later to browbeat her kid when he misbehaves. I didn't sacrifice countless hours of casual sex to have you so you could live like a pig. Now go clean your room. In one of several pieces over the years celebrating single mothers by choice, Marie Claire magazine ran stories of various such heroes, including one artificially inseminated single mother who bravely confronted society's belief That a child should have a father. She recounted an email exchange with a colleague after he found out she was pregnant. I didn't know you were married, he wrote. I'm not, I replied, annoyed. Who's the father? he pressed. I don't know his name, I shot back. Next, the artificially inseminated single mother let a post office worker have it for being confused when she gave none as the father's name. The clerk at the crowded post office couldn't fathom it. Every child has a father, she kept insisting. Finally, I shouted back, Well, mine has a sperm donor. The room fell silent. And to think, people used to say single mothers are overtly dominant, aggressive, narcissistic, and bitterly hostile. These women are inflicting social pathologies on their own children, for which society will pay, and all we get are upbeat articles about how nice it is that single women were able to conceive. "'I could not have imagined my life without being a mother,' one artificially inseminated single mother said. "'This wasn't a hard decision for me. For me, it was an absolute.' Isn't that nice for her? "'Isn't it an absolute for car thieves that they take the car?' At least she has the one trait that makes for a great mother, a narcissistic obsession with self-indulgence. It's as if society were under attack by a pack of wolves, while the blabocracy praises the wolves, builds them habitats, and publishes books on how to breed more wolves. Society loves single mothers so much, we keep creating more and more of them. In 2003, there were more than 10 million single mothers in the United States, up from about 3 million in 1970. How did this happen? The plague of single motherhood isn't merely an inevitable decay brought on by stupid choices of the underclass. It is the active social policy of liberals. After winning a Pulitzer Prize, the left's author laureate, Tony Morrison, told Time Magazine in 1989, the little nuclear family is a paradigm that just doesn't work. It doesn't work for white people or for black people. Why we are hanging on to it, I don't know. Of course, Tony Morrison was also under the impression that Bill Clinton was a black man. Gloria Steinem's most dazzling accomplishment was coming up with the saying, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle proving that a woman has to be twice as stupid as a man does in order to be recognized as stupid. The National Organization for Women sells a bumper sticker with the motto, One Nuclear Family Can Ruin Your Whole Life. Barbara Ehrenreich, a columnist for Time magazine in the 1990s, wrote that the family is personal hell, a nest of pathology and a cradle of gruesome violence where we learn nasty things like hate and rage and shame. To paraphrase Pat Buchanan's response to Hillary Clinton's comparison of the family to slavery, speak for yourself, Barbara. She cites a long and honorable tradition of anti-family thought that, oddly enough, includes nothing from C.S. Lewis, Paul Johnson, John Dos Passos, Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Sowell, or any other conservative favorites. Ehrenreich wrote, The French philosopher Charles Fourier taught that the family was a barrier to human progress. Early feminists saw a degrading parallel between marriage and prostitution. More recently, the renowned British anthropologist Edmund Leach stated that Far from being the basis of the good society, the family, with its narrow privacy and tawdry secrets, is the source of all discontents. I guess these are household names among liberals. Ehrenreich, who surprisingly enough is divorced, sneers at a culture that fetishizes the family as the ideal unit of human community. She claims that, for a woman, Home is, statistically speaking, the most dangerous place to be. There's wrong, and then there's crazy wrong. According to the U.S. Justice Department crime statistics, domestic abuse is virtually nonexistent for married women living with their husbands. From 1993 to 2005, the number of married women victimized by their husbands ranged from 0.9 to 3.2 per 1,000. Domestic violence was about 40 times more likely among divorced or separated women, ranging from 37.7 to 118.5 per 1,000. Even never-married women were more than twice as likely to be victims of domestic violence as married women. Evidently, the safest place for a woman to be is at home with her husband. In another passage suggesting that Ehrenreich was raised on a different planet, she says... The larger culture aggrandizes wife-beaters, degrades women, or nods approvingly at child slappers. True, domestic violence skyrocketed the first year of Clinton's presidency and again the year of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, but not to worry, Caligula is gone. Even Democrats rejected his wife as their presidential nominee in 2008. Of course, he would have been gone a lot sooner without liberals like Ehrenreich denouncing the sexual puritanism of those of us trying to impeach him. Ehrenreich says she is merely brave enough to state what we all know as proof that we all loathe the traditional family. She cites the public interest in O.J.'s murder of his ex-wife, the Menendez brothers' murder of their parents, and Lorena Bobbitt's attack on her husband's private parts. Our unseemly interest in O.J. and Eric, Lyle and Lorena, she says, allow us, however gingerly, to break the silence on the hellish side of family life. I guess our unseemly interest in the missing Natalie Holloway case allowed us to break our silence on the hellish side of summer vacations, and our unseemly interest in the Martha Moxley murder allowed us to break our silence on the hellish side of Greenwich, Connecticut. In another upbeat article for Time magazine, Erin Reich airily announced that society should concern itself with encouraging good divorces. The goal, she says, should be to destigmatize divorce and to concentrate on improving the quality of divorces. She suggests that couples be forced by the government to plan for divorce before marriage by requiring prenuptial agreements specifying how the children will be cared for in the event of a split children of divorce already face enough tricky interpersonal situations she said without everyone acting as though divorce is a bad thing surely a society that smiles upon divorce will compensate for mommy and daddy not living together while we're at it if society would stop harping about drunk driving i think it would really perk up paraplegics who became that way by driving drunk this is mainstream liberal thought Ehrenreich wrote these inanities not on the Daily Coast blog, but in Time magazine. She has been regularly featured in the New York Times, the New Republic, and the Atlantic Monthly. As Irving Kristol said, Rot and decadence are no longer the consequence of liberalism, but are the actual agenda of contemporary liberalism. Still, the left's transformation of society from family based to single mother based. Has been accomplished with astonishing speed. Author Maggie Gallagher, who as an erstwhile single mother speaks with some authority, says the problem is that people shrink from addressing the social disasters of their friends. People are mum about the horror of single motherhood if they know a single mother. They refuse to condemn divorce if they know a divorcee. They can't think of a single objection to gay adoption if they know a gay couple that has adopted gallagher says this allows upscale conservatives to hurl stigmas at unwed moms but not divorced single mothers without having to insult anyone they actually know that would help explain how marriage the central force in transmitting civilization has unraveled with such alacrity Starting only a few decades ago, liberals launched a three-front attack on marriage through the courts, the welfare system, and popular culture. With each incremental gain, their advances grew geometrically as people lost the ability to condemn what their family, friends, and neighbors were doing. By now, as G.K. Chesterton said, "...the act of defending any of the cardinal virtues has all the exhilaration of a vice." Welfare bureaucrats paid single women money just for having children out of wedlock, liberal justices on the Supreme Court stripped away the legal benefits of marriage, and pop culture glamorized single motherhood far more than cigarette companies have ever dreamed of glamorizing smoking. While masquerading as socially conscious do-gooders speaking for society's victims, liberals created a world where there would be a constant supply of new victims in need of their merciful aid. An illegitimate child might or might not be better off by having contact with his biological father. But social workers would definitely be better off with a lot more illegitimate children. Time and again, organizations purporting to speak for the children urged the courts to abolish the legal protections of marriage. To quote Irving Kristol again, liberalism aims simultaneously at political and social collectivism on the one hand and moral anarchy on the other. It cannot win, but it can make us all losers. The problem with liberalism, he says, is liberalism. The idiocy of paying single women to have illegitimate children has been so thoroughly explored, especially by Charles Murray in his groundbreaking book, Losing Ground, that even President Clinton was compelled to sign the welfare reform bill that Newt Gingrich's Republican Congress sent him in 1996. No liberals resigned in protest over Clinton's getting oral sex from a White House intern, but Peter Edelman and other liberals resigned from the Department of Health and Human Services to protest Clinton's signing of the Welfare Reform Bill. Liberals all swear to believe in evolution, but their own development since the 1930s is an example of devolution, Frances Perkins, FDR's Secretary of Labor, strenuously opposed granting welfare benefits to unwed mothers on the grounds that it would encourage women to have children out of wedlock. She had worked in a home for unwed mothers and had seen up close the damage wrought by illegitimacy. To eliminate the pain of illegitimacy, liberals set out to destroy the stigma attached to illegitimacy rather than to reduce its incidence. They turned a small problem into a national crisis by attacking laws that supported the idea that children should be born within marriage. Stigma or no stigma, the damage done to children born outside of marriage is the same. From various Supreme Court decisions stripping marriage of its legal benefits, through Hillary Clinton's comparison of marriage and the family to slavery and the Indian reservation system, right up to the left's freakish obsession with gay marriage today, liberals have never been able to grasp the point of marriage. The only interest society has in marriage is its ability to harness men's energy and direct it to the upbringing of particular children, allowing children to grow up in a secure environment and not become rapists and serial killers. Because of the vital importance of marriage to creating half-decent human beings, Civilized society has traditionally accorded a man no rights to his children and the mother few or no claims upon the father in the absence of marriage. Fathers of illegitimate children in colonial times would be pursued for minimal child support only to prevent the children from becoming wards of the state. Ironically, the legal abolition of marriage was facilitated not by single mothers, but by the archetypal villain in most liberal fairy tales, white men. Malingering, unemployed white men, but white men nonetheless. Once again, eclipsing women's accomplishments, men busting up the adoptions of their biological children may have done more damage to children in America than even single mothers. Unwed men began demanding rights to their biological offspring in the 70s, and this gave other men on the Supreme Court an excuse to destroy the legal protections of marriage. From the beginning of history up until April 3, 1972, the law generally presumed that unwed fathers were not fit to raise their children. It was this statutory presumption that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down in Stanley v. Illinois, 1972. The Stanley case was argued by attorney Patrick T. Murphy, who not only persuaded the U.S. Supreme Court to ditch the legal benefits of marriage in Stanley, but years later would help persuade a state agency to return a three-year-old to his abusive mother, who later hanged the boy. Calling him a defender of Chicago's children, the New York Times hailed Murphy for believing that children should stay with their biological parents whenever possible, apparently even violent, unwed, and unfit biological parents. Despite there being nothing in the Constitution about fathers' rights to children sired out of wedlock, The Supreme Court in Stanley found that it had the authority to nullify Illinois' statutory presumption that unwed fathers were unfit parents pursuant to the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Peter Stanley had sought legal guardianship of his three biological children after their mother died, and Illinois initiated a hearing to find legal guardians for them. Such a proceeding, obviously, would have been unnecessary had Stanley been married to their mother but in 18 years with her, Stanley had never sought a legal relationship either with her or their children together. After the mother died, he turned the children over to another couple who also had no legally enforceable obligations to the children. Though Stanley apparently had no interest in obtaining actual custodianship of the children, he was particularly concerned, as Justice Warren Berger said in his dissent, with the loss of the welfare payments he would suffer as a result of the designation of others as guardians of the children. The U.S. Supreme Court found that the Illinois law on wed fathers violated substantive due process by requiring unwed fathers to establish their fitness as parents in legal proceedings, while married fathers had to make no such proof. The substantive due process construct allows the court to jettison the considered judgment of elected state representatives as well as thousands of years of human history in order to enshrine the crackpot ideas of liberals as the law of the land. The court discovered it had this power sometime in the 1960s. For the first two centuries of the nation's history, we had small governing units across the nation called states. These states would pass laws to govern people within their boundaries— The rulers of these governing units were elected by the people in a briefly popular system of government known as democracy. A few years after Stanley, the Supreme Court was required to issue opinions further explaining an unwed father's rights. In Quilloyne v. Walcott, 1978, and Caban v. Mohammed, 1979, The court held that the Constitution required courts to examine the level of interest the sperm donor had shown in his child before allowing him to disrupt an adoption, including long hearings into the best interests of the child, hearings that anyone could see were unquestionably not in the best interests of the child. It was only a matter of time before the new rights the court had accorded unwed fathers would involve an adulterer claiming rights against the cuckolded husband. In Michael H. versus Gerald D., 1989, the court acknowledged the concept of marriage, 18 years too late, and denied the male mistress rights to the child he conceived with a married woman. But the opinion rejecting the adulterer's claims to his biological child was a shockingly narrow five-to-four decision. All five justices who ruled against the adulterer were appointed by Republican presidents. One more vote for the dissent, and courts would be forcing innocent husbands to leave their homes every other weekend so that the men who cuckolded them could have visitation time with the kids. Justice William Brennan's blistering dissent was the perfect distillation of liberal thinking the wisdom of all previous ages circa 4500 bc to 1989 amounted to mere prejudices and superstitions The traditional idea of a family, as comprising a husband, a wife, and their children, Brennan said, would turn the Constitution into a stagnant, archaic, hidebound document steeped in the prejudices and superstitions of a time long past. Brennan claimed to be arguing for tolerance of those with idiosyncrasies, that is, people who enjoy pursuing adulterous liaisons he pretentiously cited the freedom not to conform. But, as Justice Antonine Scalia pointed out in the majority opinion, one way or another, somebody loses rights. Rights are a zero-sum game. If the court were to grant the male mistress his freedom not to conform, it would rather severely constrict the husband's freedom to conform. Brennan's descent is like one of those snowy globes filled with floating flakes of liberal fantasies in an imaginary landscape. It's a perfect encapsulation of the sweet little dreams of those who are barking mad. Although Brennan claimed to be interpreting a new hip constitution, it was a constitution that existed only in his head. In every one of these cases, the Supreme Court was being asked to overrule lower courts that had upheld state laws reflecting the traditional view of marriage. The justices who argued against overruling, long-standing laws warned of what would be lost. In Caban, for example, Justice John Paul Stevens wrote, in dissent, "...all of these children have an interest in acquiring the status of legitimacy." A great many of them have an interest in being adopted by parents who can give them opportunities that would otherwise be denied. For some, the basic necessities of life are at stake. He was right, and no one, not even Justice Stevens, can remember his argument today. In a couple of decades' time, Brennan's view had completely triumphed. It seems as though it was a million years ago that there were privileges and obligations that flowed from marriage, and marriage alone. Marriage may have won a nail-biting victory over adultery in Michael H. versus Gerald D., but it was too little too late. In short order, courts and legislatures would be giving unwed mothers rights to the bank accounts of the fathers of children born out of wedlock, giving unwed fathers rights to their biological children living with adoptive parents, and giving illegitimate children inheritance rights to their biological father's estates. Illegitimacy increased not because of neglect or accident, but because of an idiotic idea aggressively pursued by self-righteous people who had worked it all out on paper, then they returned to their exclusive doorman buildings or lush suburbs where they would never personally experience the consequences of the traditional family's destruction it wasn't inevitable social decay that destroyed the family it was a plan at least the social workers are thriving With the Supreme Court having augustly ruled that a one-night stand gives a man a constitutional right to disrupt his biological child's life, in no time at all, CADs were enjoying their new rights. By the 1990s, unwed and frequently unemployed, biological fathers were ripping the products of their sexual conquests from the homes of loving adoptive families. Perhaps the most infamous case involved Baby Richard, as the courts called him, born in 1991. Baby Richard's mother, the pregnant, unwed, Daniela Janikova, ditched the father, Otakar Kirchner, after he returned to their native Czechoslovakia and allegedly started dating another girl. With Kirchner still out of the country, Janikova moved into a home for abused women, saying she had been physically abused. She gave the baby up for adoption four days after his birth and later told Kirchner the baby had died. The adoptive parents, fireman Jay Warburton and his wife Kimberly, legally adopted the boy, named him Danny, and raised him as their own along with an older biological son. Months later, Kirchner returned to America, found out Janikova had given up their illegitimate son for adoption, and decided he wanted the child back under thousands of years of anglo-saxon law this would have been ludicrous if kirchner wanted rights to his child he had better have been married to the mother when the child was born but since the supreme court had declared marriage just a smelly old hidebound institution kirchner was in the game pursuant to our new brennan invented traditions when danny was almost four years old Illinois Supreme Court Justice James Heupel ordered that the terrified child be torn away from the only parents he had ever known and handed over to a biological father he had never met. For people who hysterically denounce the influence of genetics on personality and intelligence, liberals seem to have a supernatural belief in the genetic attachment of a man to his sperm. During the court-ordered wrenching on April 30, 1995, danny cried to his parents please mommy no i'll be good don't make me leave i'll be good danny's adoptive parents appealed to the u.s supreme court but the court refused to hear the case to return danny to his adoptive parents would have been to defer to the stagnant archaic hidebound tradition of marriage firmly rejected by the court years earlier janikova and kirchner eventually married But less than two years after taking Danny from his adoptive parents, Kirchner left again, leaving his son behind, although he returned sometime later. During the period he absconded on his wife and biological son, an interesting legal wrinkle appeared. Mrs. Kirchner had no independent parental right to Danny, since she had relinquished that right when she gave him up for adoption. Nonetheless, the Warburton's never saw Danny again. The last time Danny's mother spoke to him was the night he was taken away from them. He called from Otakar Kirchner's house and told her, I love you, mummy. I'm coming home now. A few years later, Danny's psychologist, Karen Moriarty, who had been hired by the biological father, sued Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green for suggesting that she planned to write a book about baby Richard. She claimed not only that she had no intention of writing a book about Baby Richard, but that it was defamatory per se for Green to imply that she had any idea of writing a book. In 2003, Moriarty published Baby Richard, A Four-Year-Old Comes Home. In the book, she assured readers that Baby Richard had turned out just fine and bore no emotional scars from the court-ordered transfer that she had supported brain twister do we have to wait for moriarty to claim it is defamatory per se to say danny has emotional scars to know for sure that he has emotional scars in another case at about the same time the baby jessica case an unwed mother in iowa cara clausen gave her baby up two days after the child's birth in 1991 she listed her then boyfriend as the father on the child's birth certificate and both parents formally agreed to the adoption a married couple from michigan drove to iowa to take custody of the baby girl and began the process of adoption but a few weeks later the mother broke up with a boyfriend she had named as the father and resumed relations with an ex-boyfriend dan schmidt who she now said was the real father schmidt decided he wanted the baby Two and a half years later, baby Jessica was ripped away from the only parent she had ever known and given to the biological father. Naturally, the unwed fathers taking their biological children from adoptive families portrayed themselves as victims. To win in America, one must always be the first to claim victim status. Fathers' rights groups battled with women's rights groups over who was the greater victim and, in the process, created real victims out of their children the only point both sides seemed to agree on was that marriage is irrelevant the institution that had protected children for thousands of years was gone just 20 years after stanley it was as if the concept of marriage had never existed the supreme court's destruction of marriage is the perfect example of chesterton's remark that when you break the big laws you do not get freedom You do not even get anarchy. You get the small laws. Having decided in Stanley that being married to the mother was not necessary for a man to have rights to his children, the Supreme Court, together with lower courts and state legislatures, spent the subsequent three and a half decades trying to formulate substitute rules to govern unwed parents. But without the concept of marriage, this is like trying to rewrite the rules of baseball without a ball— Courts and legislatures have simply crafted a patchwork of new rules that are a pale imitation of the traditional law of marriage. After a raft of these adoption cases in the early 90s, with unwed fathers being lied to by their pregnant girlfriends, leading to stomach-turning scenes of children being ripped from happy adoptive homes, states responded by trying to recreate the benefits of marriage without marriage. Most states now have some form of paternity registry requiring unwed fathers to stake their claim to illegitimate children within six months of the child's birth to have standing to bring lawsuits upending the child's life. Marriage used to do that without vast phalanxes of social workers having to maintain a paternity registry. Say, you know what would be great? It would be great if we had some way of determining who the father is, by law, at the moment a child is born. Also, mothers should try to get some sort of commitment from the father to stay with her and raise their child together before bringing a child into the world. Maybe couples planning on having children together could have one of those commitment ceremonies the gays have. Justice Brennan might respect a commitment ceremony, just don't call it marriage. It never occurs to anyone to simply return to the original rule. Unless a man is married to a woman when she gives birth to his child, he has no rights to that child, and unless a woman is married to a man when she gives birth to his child, she has no right to his paycheck or his time. Surveying the wreckage wrought by the destruction of the legal incidents of marriage, a columnist in the New York Times exulted, Surely this change is a welcome corrective to the injustice of traditional marriage laws and family values that stigmatized bastards for life. Except that one can't help noticing how many more bastards there are now that the stigma has been removed. It only took a few inane Supreme Court rulings in the 1970s to make the idea of marriage fly completely out of the head of Illinois Supreme Court Justice James Heupel and his cohorts in various courts across the nation. How much more vulnerable to the loss of this idea are young, stupid women... Inasmuch as broken families are almost entirely a problem of the underclass in America, it is fatuous to imagine that popular culture doesn't influence these most feckless of citizens. Liberals believe that the pathetic waifs with the pregnancy pact at Gloucester High School are too stupid to know how to use a condom, as if they wanted to, but are sophisticated enough to completely ignore a pop culture that ferociously glamorizes single motherhood. We've got tabloids and glossy magazines touting the unwed pregnancies of starlets christian ministers referring to unwed mothers like their jesus on the cross and a popular culture that can conceive of no greater barbarity than waiting for marriage to have sex hmm i wonder if that has had any effect on the increase in illegitimate children being born to girls with massively low self-esteem a real estate broker in atlanta not a teenage runaway, told the New York Times she decided to become a single mother by in vitro fertilization because she concluded that it has quietly become a socially acceptable choice, if only because so many are making it. An adult with a job in a major city can't resist the pop culture hype about single motherhood. How much more vulnerable is a teenage girl from a broken family? Among the movies featuring single mothers are... Look Who's Talking, 1989, Stella, 1990, Mermaids, 1990, Gas Food Lodging, 1992, Forrest Gump, 1994, Losing Isaiah, 1995, As Good As It Gets, 1997, Anywhere But Here, 1999, Tumbleweeds, 1999, The Next Best Thing, 2000, Chocolat, 2000, Aaron Brokovich. 2000, You Can Count On Me, 2000, The Princess Diaries, 2001, Hearts in Atlantis, 2001, White Oleander, 2002, Eight Crazy Nights, 2002, Freaky Friday, 2003, Secondhand Lions, 2003, Sherry Baby, 2006, and Superman Returns, 2006. I guess Hollywood got Dan Quayle back. At the 2001 Academy Awards, three of the five women nominated for Best Actress played single mothers. Julie Roberts, who won the Oscar for her role in Erin Brockovich, as well as Juliette Binoche for Chocolat, and Laura Linney for You Can Count on Me. A fourth nominee, Ellen Burstyn, played a widow in Requiem for a Dream. This isn't a fad, it's a trend that reflects reality, said Jeff Sharp, a producer of You Can Count on Me. There are increasing numbers of strong, successful women who are raising families and having a career without a partner. Describing her role as a single mother in Anywhere But Here, Susan Sarandon, who has three children with two men to whom she has not been married, said, It's just a very rich area to explore. Actress Janet McTeer, portraying a single mother in the movie Tumbleweeds, explained the prevalence of single mothers in Hollywood movies, saying, It's more typical for a woman to have to raise children on her own. It's a theme that can be endlessly explored. We're constantly told that the underclass is trapped by circumstances, unaware of the option of waiting until marriage to have children. Maybe other choices would come into focus more clearly if Hollywood didn't have a new Hayes standard prohibiting movies and TV shows from showing married people having children. All sentient human beings know that single motherhood is ruinous for children. But meanwhile, the mainstream media and Hollywood studios are constantly issuing propaganda about the joys and triumphs of single motherhood. Baby Talk magazine actually titled an article... Married versus single moms, who's got the better deal? The magazine warned that having a partner to parent with isn't all wine and roses, adding that 22% of the married women they polled agreed that it might sometimes be easier to be unmarried. The magazine tepidly concluded that married mothers probably win out in the end just because they have dad's extra assistance, emotional support, and income but it was a nail-biter. Mary Claire seems to have updated the usual women's magazine formula, jealousy, envy, and love, to include regular peons to the joys of single motherhood, even as the evidence pours in on its danger to children. The October 2001 issue featured an article about a single mother by choice. I made my lifelong dream come true. In June 2005, it was an article titled, Why Should I Wait?, a happy story by an artificially inseminated unwed mother who I predict will have trouble explaining to her child the concept of delayed gratification. And in 2008, it was And Baby Makes Two?, about heroic single mothers. On NBC's mega-hit sitcom Friends, when the pretty, popular Rachel gets pregnant out of wedlock, two of the three male stars fall madly in love with her. On Sex and the City, unwed mother Miranda acquires her most impressive boyfriend of the series, a handsome doctor, after giving birth to an illegitimate baby, but then dumps him to marry the father of her child and end up happily ever after. Back on planet Earth, one's chances of finding Mr. Right do not tend to improve after having a baby out of wedlock. A Cornell University study found that unwed mothers are 30 percent less likely to marry than other single women, and, I would venture, 100 percent more likely to have received sex education and condoms in schools that don't believe abstinence works. Both the likelihood of marriage and the quality of marital partners, said the study's author Daniel Lichter, are adversely affected by out-of-wedlock childbearing. Us Weekly celebrated single motherhood with an article titled, The New Single Moms and How They Do It, delusionally proclaiming, sisters are doing it for themselves. No, they're not. They're doing it at a colossal, unwelcome cost to every man, woman, and child in America. Hollywood actresses have dropped sex tapes and moved on to single motherhood as a way to promote their careers. Among the current celebrity unwed mothers are Jessica Alba, Halle Berry, Minnie Driver, Bridget Moynihan, Nicole Ritchie, Jamie Lynn Spears, and Michelle Williams. There was also Char Jackson, the ex-girlfriend of Kevin Federline, who was briefly married to Britney Spears, but if we're including people associated with Britney Spears, there's no telling how long the list would be. Starlets who have adopted children while unmarried include Sheryl Crow, Calista Flockhart, Cameron Manheim, Meg Ryan, and Angelina Jolie. Apparently, busting up tribal wars to adopt foreign babies has become the latest form of Hollywood autoeroticism. In 2004, Vanity Fair gushed about single mother Angelina Jolie. Splashed all over the tabloids as the temptress who came between Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, Angelina Jolie sounds more like a stressed-out single parent than a screen siren. People magazine quoted single mother Jolie saying responsibly that she engages in adult relationships with men who were already very close friends of mine, lasting a few hours and promising no commitment. I can feel like a woman, said Jolie, 28, but it's not a relationship that interferes with my family. She stresses it's not casual. I've never had a one-night stand in my life. These are people I know very well. How Angelina Jolie manages to lure men into brief, no-strings-attached sexual encounters is anybody's guess. Meg Ryan was described in People as raunchy in a new film, but keeps life as a single mom low-key. The magazine reported that she was dating another single parent, little-known actor William Keane, who shared custody of a daughter with an ex-girlfriend. After a single mother from the ghetto, Fantasia Monique Barino became the 2004 American Idol winner, she released her debut album, including the song Baby Mama. For unknown reasons, some narrow-minded people thought the song celebrated single motherhood solely because it includes lines like, Nowadays, it's like a badge of honor to be a baby mama. And, B-A-B-Y-M-A-M-A, this goes out to all my baby mamas. So everything will work out fine in the end for single mothers, provided they become American Idol winners. A child has no control over whether his parents are married, but society can create incentives that will dramatically increase the odds of children having married parents. So why all the reverence for single mothers, but not for married men and women raising their kids in the traditional way? Parents who had shotgun marriages or who relinquished illegitimate children to adoptive parents, or who stuck it out through tough times for the sake of their children. These are the ones who should be venerated, not somebody's baby mama.